So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. We'll be in chapter 5, verses 16 to 22. If you're visiting us and you don't have a Bible, it is found on page 1048. And if you don't own a Bible, please take that as our gift to you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 to 22. December 4th, 2021, I ran my first half marathon. Wasn't expecting that response, but oh yeah, I receive it. So I ran my first half marathon, and leading up to the race, y'all, I was training hard. I mean, I trained, and I trained, and I trained. My wife would tell you I'm getting up super early in the morning um, to go on these runs while the kids are asleep. And y'all, I thought I was getting it as I was training. Like, man, I'm going hard. And so the race day is coming. I thought I was going to kill that thing. So I thought. And so it's race day. You know, it's the St. Jude, and so I get there, I start running. First few miles, I'm feeling real good. I'm feeling real good. Man, I I got my good average pace. I'm excited about that. I'm, you know, swerving through people. I'm encouraging them as I'm passing them. I'm like, man, hey, good job, y'all. Good job. You're doing good, man. Great cost. All this stuff like that. I'm just getting it. Then around mile nine or ten. It was a completely different story. Y'all, I hit a wall. I mean, I hit a wall. Monkey caught my back. I went from getting it to getting got by it. Like, so serious. And the the same people who I saw in miles one through five who I was encouraging, y'all, I saw them again. (laughs) But it wasn't the finish line. It was like around mile 10 or 11. Y'all remember, I encouraged them on the front end. Well, now they're encouraging me on the back end. <laughs> they're telling me, they're like, hey, good job. Keep on going. You're almost there. <laughs> so, y'all, it was a train wreck. I crossed the finish line. I finished. I did finish. But I didn't finish well. And my wife would tell you, I was perplexed about this thing. I'm like, man, Why? You know, man, I trained so hard. I thought I trained well. Like, man, good pace and stuff like that. I ran 12 miles in my training, and I felt good about it. So I was perplexed about it. I talked to a friend. I explained to her what happened. She told me. She was like, Joshua, I know the problem. You didn't refuel during the race, and so you ran out of gas. Your tank went on E. She said, man, if you're going to endure well the run of a half marathon, you need to start slower, drink water at every station, and then around mile four or five, you need to refuel, maybe eat some fruit or something like that. That way you can maintain that good pace, and then around miles nine and ten, you have something in the tank to keep on going, and then you can kick it in strongly. Profound. I was like, wow, (laughs) that easy, huh? (laughs) Blown away by it. But what she said hit me is that if you're going to endure well the race, there are a few essential and indispensable components that are necessary. That apart from them or the absence of them, it will inhibit you from enduring well. As we get to Our text this morning, it is sandwiched between suffering and the completion of our sanctification. And Paul makes known in our passage that if we're going to endure well our suffering and continue to progress in our sanctification all the way until it is completed by God, there are some essential components There are some disciplines that we must be faithful to do if we're going to endure well and progress in sanctification to the very end. And those two disciplines are reading God's word 
and communing with God in prayer. Apart from those two disciplines, we will not endure well, and we will not continue to progress in our sanctification until the very end. And so Paul exhorts us in these ways in this morning's passage. If you're able to, please stand for the reading of God's word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 to 22. Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Don't stifle the Spirit. Don't despise prophecies, but test all things. Hold on to what is good Stay away from every kind of evil. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You may be seated. So how do we endure well and progress in our sanctification? Paul tells us that there are two components that are necessary, and he exhorts us to do this. First, we must commune with God And second, we must cherish his word. Commune with God and cherish his word. Those are exhortations from the passage, kind of our outline. So we've reached the final section of this letter. And Paul, he's continuing to exhort the congregation. Last time in the book we saw... In chapter 5, verses 12 to 15, Paul gives exhortations focusing on relationships within the church. Telling us how we are to relate with, to church leaders and how we are to relate to one another. Well, in this morning's passage, he focuses on our relationship to God and his word. And it's important for us to remember that Paul is laboring for the maturity of this congregation that he is seeking to complete what is lacking in their faith. As they have faith in Christ, they have been saved by God's grace. They are holding fast to the gospel. And this morning, the gospel and our salvation is the soil by which these exhortations arise from. So first, we are to commune with God. Look at verse 16. Paul says, rejoice always. He commands the church to rejoice. Now, I don't know if you know this, but it's necessary for one to have joy if they're going to rejoice. You can't rejoice apart from having joy first. And so what is joy? It is a delight in God for for who he is and his salvation in Christ Jesus. It is a gladness in God for who he is and his saving work. It is when the heart is happy in Jesus. It is a fruit of the Spirit, and it is rooted in the hope of Jesus Christ. And Paul, he commands us to rejoice, to express this delight in God for who he is and his saving work. It's important for us to know that the object of our joy is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. For in another book, in Philippians chapter 4, Paul would say it this way in verse 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I would say rejoice. In this verse, he tells us to rejoice. Now, many of us don't have problem with that. It's the always. That makes us a little uncomfortable. It's that word always that causes our eyebrows to raise. Like, always, Paul? And some of you may be thinking, like, man, Paul, are you crazy? You don't know my life. I'm suffering. Recently experienced a loss in the family. Unemployed. I've been single for a very long time, and I desire marriage. We've been married for quite some time, and we desire children, and we struggle with infertility. And you want me to rejoice always. 
Well, the church whom Paul is writing to, they too have had their fair share of suffering. You see, they didn't receive this letter in a palace having a silver spoon be fed to them. This very own congregation also suffered. They were persecuted for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Church members in their own congregation have died, and so they are grieving and mourning, and yet Paul tells this congregation to rejoice always. It's important for us to remember that Paul is not being apathetic to our suffering. He doesn't minimize our hurt. Instead, what he does is counterintuitive. What Paul does is he magnifies the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and tells us to set our gaze there. It is because the finished work of Jesus, it propels us to rejoice always. We are, by God's grace, beneficiaries of his saving work. Think about what we have in Christ Jesus. We have forgiveness of all, all, all of our sins. We have been delivered from the judgment that is to come. We've been justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been adopted into the family of God to where he is now our God and Father. And we've been made co-heirs with Christ in his coming kingdom. Beloved, these glorious truths are not circumstantial. They are permanent. And Paul tells us to rejoice always in this reality. What Paul is trying to do for us is have the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ to be the glasses that we wear as we journey through life. That we may see all of life clearly and see it with hope because Jesus died and Jesus rose. And that changes everything for us. And beloved, the Apostle Paul, he is not alone in trying to have us fix our gaze upon the glorious hope that we have. The Apostle Peter does the very same thing to fix our gaze upon the eternal hope that we have. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. In this, in this, in this you rejoice. Even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. Beloved, it is in this eternal hope that we have that we are to rejoice. The reality is our rejoicing will last as far as our hope goes. And because in Christ we have an eternal hope, that means our joy and our rejoicing should be ceaseless. Paul tells us to rejoice always, and it doesn't mean that life is going to always be good. In fact, the Lord Jesus tells his disciples that in this life you will have trouble. We will suffer in this age. We will even suffer from following Jesus as the Thessalonians experienced. And yet we can still have joy. We can still rejoice. Beloved, the reality is grief and gladness, they go together. They can go together. They are not enemies. They can live in the same house. They can sleep in the same room. And it is the hope of Jesus Christ that makes that possible. So where Christ has saved us by his grace, we are forgiven, we're delivered, we're redeemed. We have salvation now. And yet we still live in this evil age where we ex ourselves experience the effects of sin in this world. It's because we, we live between this, this tension of the already and not yet. It's because we have hope in the midst of a fallen world that even Paul himself says that we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. 
What that means is that we can lament with deep sadness over a diagnosis. And yet we can still rejoice with great hope. Because what Jesus has accomplished, we know that one day our bodies will be redeemed. Beloved, if we're going to rejoice always, it is imperative that we meditate on the hope of Jesus Christ. That it is on the forefront of our minds. That we don't stop thinking about it. And we can rejoice with this hope because we know that Christ will return soon. Our King is coming. So as we await his return, we can have joy in the here and now, in anticipation of that day. Last year, summer of 2021, my wife and I, we had planned a trip to go to Atlanta to celebrate our seventh anniversary. Y'all, we were so excited to go, like so excited, because it, was our, it would have been our first uh, trip without kids. We love our kids, but man, we were really looking forward to time together, apart from them. And leading up to the trip, y'all, it was crazy in the Chapman house. I mean, we were exhausted every night. Our kids are running wild. We love our kids. And if y'all know them and hung out with them, y'all know the type of energy they could have and how they just bounce off the wall with all kinds of excitement. We recently potty trained our son. He's getting after it. And then Braley is just trying to follow him and everything he does. Like every night, we were exhausted. So much so, we began to count down the days until we got to Atlanta. And we began to picture the joy that we would have when it's just my wife and I hanging out in Atlanta in our Airbnb, just kicking it and going out and eating good food. Like we were anticipating it so much so that that excitement began to change our disposition in the home. It helped us endure. It didn't make life easier, but it definitely helped us endure. Well, beloved, because we know that Jesus Christ will one day return, and we know that the joy that we will experience for all of eternity, God can transfer some of that joy on that day to our account in this day as we anticipate the return of Christ is because of that reality that we can rejoice always. Beloved, we have an eternal hope in Christ, which gives us a joy that transcends all circumstances. It is this reason why Christian slaves could rejoice all the while being severely dehumanized and beaten by their slave owners. It was because they knew Jesus Christ. And they were anticipating the future deliverance that he would bring. Beloved, Paul tells us to rejoice always and as his people, as, as we con come together, as we assemble in the name of Christ, joy should be evident among us. There's no reason for our entire service to be doom and gloom from beginning to end because Christ has risen from the grave. Because we have salvation. That is good news. And the implications of it should produce great joy among God's people. And so Paul tells us to rejoice always. Look at verse 17. He tells us, pray constantly. What is prayer? It is talking with God. He is our God and Father. He has adopted us in Christ. And now our loving Father affectionately welcomes us to approach him. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 says, Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Y'all, we have a 24-hour access to God. The sovereign King of kings, he will give us his ear any time. And y'all, he's never annoyed. Never annoyed. No time in the morning is too early and no time at night is too late. In the words of Tim Keller, 
Who would dare wake a king at 3 a.m. but his child? And through faith in Christ, we have that type of access to the God of the universe. Beloved, are you taking advantage of it? Paul tells us to pray constantly. That's important for us to know that he doesn't mean that every waking moment of our life should be a prayer. What he's getting at here is that we are to pray continuously, that we are to pray frequently. You know, the frequency can be like eating. Most people, they eat about three meals a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But if you're like me, those ain't the only times that you eat. I'm always eating in between every meal. I'm always snacking on something. You know, whether it's grapes, bell peppers, almonds, you name it, I always got a snack on me. You can ask the elders. I bring one to the elders' meeting, every elders' meeting. I always got something. Y'all, what if our prayer life was that frequently? So we're constantly communing with our God and Father and casting our cares upon him throughout the day. How much more peace and confidence and comfort would we have if we prayed constantly? Beloved, we're exhorted to pray constantly because we are always, always, always in need of God. Just as a child is always in need of their parents. I would know I got three of them. They need us to feed them, to bathe them, to clothe them, to wipe them, to teach them, to tuck them in at night to wipe their eyes when they cry, to buckle them into the car seats. They are constantly in need of us. And, y'all, we are even more in need of God. We need him more. We need his provision, his protection, his guidance, his wisdom, his knowledge. Those who recognize that we're constantly in need of God, would be the ones who pray constantly. Reality is, I fear that some of us would, instead of seeing this as a blessing, some of us would see this as a burden. And the reason is because we fail to recognize how much we need God. Like Adam, when he sinned, we want to live independently from God. But when are we not dependent upon him? Beloved, the gospel of Jesus Christ woos us to pray constantly. Think about it. God gave his son for us that he may bring us to him. His love compels us to come to him and pray about everything. Y'all, if we have trusted Christ, we have trusted him with our salvation, what can't we trust him with? How are you doing in praying constantly? Beloved, are you struggling? If so, I would encourage you to get around other members who you know who pray and pray regularly, and I would encourage you to pray with them. Get into the fray with them and hope that the Lord will use that to heat you up and to burn up your prayer life. It is exhortations like this why churches throughout history, have scheduled a separate prayer meeting because there's always much to pray for. Praying for unity and maturity. Praying for endurance in the faith. Praying for other churches to regularly and faithfully preach the gospel. Praying for evangelism opportunities for God to save. Praying for the Lord to raise up more missionaries that the gospel may go forth to the ends of the earth. Praying for our very own governing authorities. They would be a people who pray constantly. And Paul tells us, he goes on in verse 18, he says, Give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. He exhorts us to be a people who regularly pray prayers of thanksgiving. What's implicit in this is that we are to be a grateful people. And we give thanks to God because he is constantly and always good to us. We give thanks to him in everything because we we know that he is sovereign over all things. And he is good to us in all things. Beloved, everything 
that we have, every good thing that we have, it comes from God. James chapter 1, verse 17 says, every good gift and perfect gift is from above, 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 coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. No good thing we have came from us. It only came from God. With that being said, let me address the children in the room. Children, it is likely that your parents taught you to express gratitude in response to one being kind to you, to say thank you, whether it's you just received some food or some money or some toys or some clothes. You're taught to say thank you. And every good thing that you enjoy, I want you to know it comes from God. And the greatest gift God has ever given is his son. So this afternoon, I want to encourage you children to try to, if you can, write a list of everything that you are thankful for. Everything that you enjoy. Don't leave one thing off. And do it with your parents in the room and y'all can talk about it. And after you make that list, I would encourage you to let your parents lead you in a prayer of thanksgiving. Because all of it comes from God who has been abundantly kind to you. And try to make that a regular habit. Think about one thing at the end of the day you can thank God for. Paul tells us in verse 18 to give thanks in everything. In every circumstance. Now, y'all, it is easy for us to do this when we have good grades, a great job, a sweet relationship, or when a surgery was successful. Because in all of those things, you feel as if God is for you. But what about in the hard times? When you're looked over for a promotion? When there's a hard season in your marriage? When you're suffering physical illness and there are no answers that the doctor has given you. Or when your car, get, car window get busted in and somebody tries to rob you and steal your car. I say that one because that just happened to us this past weekend. And so we're in the thick of it. In the midst of that, it's easy for one to feel as if God is against you. So if we're going to give thanks in these hard times... In the words of Pastor John Piper, we must have a robust understanding of God's sovereignty. That we must know, like the children's song we learned in church, that he has the whole world in his hands. And not just the whole world, he has you and me, brother. You and me, sister, in his hands. Not only that, we must know that God is immutable which means he does not change in character and purposes and ways. Beloved, if we're going to give thanks in everything, including the hard times, it requires that we walk by faith. Faith in what God has revealed in his word and not walk by sight. You see, it takes faith for us to know that in the storms, God is as loving towards us, as sovereign over us, and as good to us as he is in the sunshine. Now, our situations won't scream that to us. Your friends may not say that to you, but beloved, the scriptures shout it, and the church is to iterate it. That God is always good to us. Beloved, we can, give, we can give thanks in everything, even in the hard times when we remember that, God, it is you who got me and not me myself. We can give thanks to God in the hard times when we think about what God, what didn't happen. Like this past Saturday when, we, when somebody broke into my car, my wife and I were heading to a Paw Patrol showing uh, for the kids. And, man, she's praying. And one of the things we talked about after the prayer was, man, we praise God that they only tried to get the car. That they didn't try to come into the house. 
Beloved, we can begin to give thanks when we think about how God and his kindness has protected us and preserved us and sustained us. God, we thank you that you've given us this day with our loved ones. They haven't left yet. We thank you that you are with us in the midst of it even now. Beloved, in our hardship, suffering is hard. It is not good. But we can give thanks to God in the midst of it when we remember that it pales in comparison to the suffering that Jesus saved us from. That what we experience, it is hard, but what we deserve is way worse. And God in Christ has delivered us from it. We can give thanks because we know that God is using it for our good. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says, And we know that God works all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. There's a sovereign God over every situation, and he is always, always, always after our good. Beloved, he uses our good times and hard times, especially the hard times to conform us more into the likeness of Christ, to bring us closer to himself. To have us hunger all the more for heaven. These are good things that we can thank God for. Beloved, in our suffering, we can thank God knowing that there is a timer on that thing and there is no time, and there is eternal joy that awaits us. Paul says, This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Our God and Father, He wills and ordains for us to have this ongoing delightful communion with him in Christ. That we be a people who are joyful, prayerful, and grateful. It is possible to have this in Christ because in Christ God has been so good to us. He has given us his son and we have sweet communion with him. Beloved, as we live these things out by his grace, we can have contentment in every circumstance. Have this confident and deep abiding trust regardless of what's happening to us or what's happening around us. Because we know that God sees us. We know that he is with us. We know that he is where he is taking all of human history. And it's to the new heavens and the new earth. Beloved, it is as we have this ongoing communion with God, it strengthens our hope. And it's attractive to non-Christians. For no other people in this world can be joyful, prayerful, and grateful in all things. Because no other people in this world have a living and eternal hope. Only Christians. And by God's grace, as we live this out, it confounds unbelievers. How are you able to do that? When you just experienced this, it's because God loves me. It's because Christ is coming. The worst thing that could happen to me didn't happen to me. It happened to his son. And I have, man, everything in Christ. It testifies to the beauty of the hope that we have in Jesus. If you're visiting us this morning, you're not a Christian, friends, I'm glad you are here. I want you to know these exhortations, um, they're not given for you. They're not intended for you to try to live out. In fact, if you tried, it would only be futile. It is impossible to do because first and foremost, Christ must be your hope. God wills for Christians to live this way. God wills for you to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. For he has said a day that he would judge the world in righteousness. And the only way that you can be delivered from that judgment is is by trusting in the one whom he has given, Jesus Christ. He is the son who became man, who suffered and died for the sins of all who would trust in him. And three days later, he rose from the grave. Friends, God offers you forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And to receive it, you must turn from your sin and trust in Christ. We'd love to talk with you more about this. You can talk with any of our members after service. So, beloved, if we're going to endure in the faith, 
We want to progress in our communion with God. It is necessary. Progress in our sanctification. It is necessary that we commune with God. Endurance and progress in the sanctification, it doesn't happen apart from it. We must also cherish God's word. Look at verse 19. Paul says, don't stifle the spirit. Now, here's the first prohibition in these exhortations. Now, to stifle, or to ESV, what the ESV says, to quench the spirit. He says, don't do this. Now, the spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He indwells all who have trusted in Jesus Christ. He sanctifies us, seeking to make us more and more like Christ, to where we're more humble, more loving, more patient. His sanctifying work happens in us, and it is evident outwardly. As we behold Christ, he makes us more like Jesus. That's what it talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Paul exhorts us to not stifle the Spirit. Now, to stifle the Spirit is to oppose his sanctifying work. It's like pouring water on a fire that is intended to heat you up. Because Christ has saved us by his grace, we're to be a people who walk in step with the Spirit, cherishing the Word of God, making effort to obey the Lord, resisting our flesh. We're to not be a people who work against the Spirit. Now, what does that look like? What is it like to stifle the Spirit? Well, think it looks like constantly and persistently closing your Bibles. Rejecting the Spirit's leading and walking according to the flesh. That would be absurd for Christians to do because Christ has saved us and made us new. It is as absurd as saying that medium steaks, medium cooked steaks are the best steaks. You tell your friends that and then you go to a steakhouse and the waiter or waitress asks you, what do you want? And you say, I want my steak well done. Like that waiter and waitress has the permission to look at you crazy. Your friends do as well. It's like, man, you just said medium is the best. So why are you doing it this way? It is as absurd as declaring with your lips that Jesus Christ has made you new. And yet declaring with your life that you miss the old you. Paul says, don't stifle the spirit. In a corporate gathering, it looks like mindlessly going through the motions, ignoring the preached word. Rather than having an eager anticipation for it, there's an eager anticipation for it to end. Paul tells us to avoid this, and so how do we do it? Prepare our hearts, being in the word, desiring to hear and heed what God is saying to us through the preached word. And knowing that Paul exhorts us to not stifle the spirit, it impacts how we respond to teachers and the teaching of God's word. Look at verses 20 to 22. Paul says, don't despise prophecies, but test all things. Hold on to what is good. Stay away from every kind of evil. I know some of you like prophecies. What's going on here? Some wondering, do they still exist? Both my cessationists and my continuationist brothers and sisters are probably on the edge of their seat wondering, what am I going to say now? Some of y'all probably just woke up like, huh, perfect timing. This is what I was waiting to hear. Well, let's get into the lab, and I'll bring this to our level. So here we're talking about like the miraculous gifts. Think about prophecy, tongues, or miracles. Now, it's important to know that Throughout Christendom, there have been two camps. You have cessationists who believe that the gifts have ceased at the end of the apostolic age and the canon is closed, when the canon closed. And then you have continuationists. They believe that those gifts continue. Now, there are faithful Christians who, are, who identify in both camps. None of this is in our statement of faith, and so we, you can hold to either. In fact, we do have members that hold to both. I may hold to one or the other. When cards on the table, I'm a cessationist. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 
Paul says prophecies and tongues will cease. I believe that the application for us today is different in some ways than what it was for the Thessalonians. Now hear me out before you send me an email. Think about prophecies. Prophecies, they were a spontaneous revelation that came from the Spirit, from God, to his prophets. They were to speak to people. Now, oftentimes in the Old Testament, most prophecies were future in nature, and they pertain to judgment and salvation, constantly unveiling what is to come, what is to come in redemptive history. Now, the prophetic office has been fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 2 says, Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. So God has spoken through the Son, telling people to repent and believe and trust in Jesus for salvation, resting in his finished work alone as we await his imminent return. We know what is to come as we read the book of Revelation. Beloved, there is no new revelation as it pertains to redemptive history. Now, in the New Testament, the Spirit did give the gift of prophecy to some. Think about some New Testament prophets like Agabus or Silas or Barsabas, even Philip's four daughters in Acts chapter 21. The thing is, they didn't unveil anything new as it pertained to redemptive history. Think about Acts chapter 11. By the Spirit of God, Agabus predicted that there would be a famine throughout the Roman world. Or Acts chapter 21, it was by the Spirit that Agabus predicted that the Apostle Paul would be arrested and placed in chains. Now in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, there's prophesying going on and the intent is for the edification of the body. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul tells them how they were to respond, not to immediately embrace it, but to evaluate what's being proclaimed. And the reason is because false prophets were real. And though you had prophets in the New Testament, it was the words of the apostles that were esteemed. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 37, Paul says, If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should recognize that what I write to you is the Lord's command. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 27, Paul says, I charge you by the Lord that this letter be read to all the brothers and sisters. Now the apostolic age has ended. The canon is closed. We have all of God's word, including the words of the apostles. Beloved, the Spirit speaks to us as we read the words that he has written. Oftentimes what people call prophecies today, other people will call impressions. The word one feels that there's a word of encouragement that God has given him that they're trying to utter to some people. And even when the encouraging word is given, we must still evaluate it to see whether or not it's actually biblical. And most people who call themselves prophets today or the fact that they utter some sort of prophecies, isn't it ironic that it's always prosperity? It's always prosperous in some kind. It is pleasant to the ears. But when you think about prophecies in the Old Testament, most of them pertain to judgment. You think about Agabus' prophecies in Acts chapter 11 and 21, it was not pleasant that there would be a famine and that Paul would be arrested. Paul tells them, this congregation, to not despise prophecy, to not have this immediate contempt towards prophets, but instead they were to listen to them and weigh what was being proclaimed. And whatever was true, they were to receive. Whatever is true and in step with Paul's gospel and the scriptures, they were to receive. And whatever was false or contradicted it, they were to utterly reject it. Beloved, I believe that there are no prophets today, but there are preachers in God's churches. And part of the purpose of the prophecies back then was to build up the body, the very same purpose of our preaching. 
that we preach for the edification of the saints. And so the application for us as it relates to preachers and the preaching of God's word, that we do not regard them the same way we regard our least favorite news outlet. That we don't immediately think that it's false. It's through the preached word that God speaks to his church. It is through the preached word that he is sanctifying his people. And so as the church, we are to give an ear to what's being said from the pulpit. And we are to evaluate what is being proclaimed. Now it's important for us to know that this evaluation isn't based on our feelings. It's not based upon whether you liked it or not. It's not based upon the number of jokes the pastor made or how comfortable he made you or how popular the message is in our day. We don't weigh it according to that. No, we weigh it according to the teachings of Scripture, which means when the word goes forth from the pulpit, we do not close our Bibles. We open them and we listen to what's being preached. We listen intently and we listen studiously. You guys are going to be a people who fact check everything like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17. Constantly examining the scriptures to see that these things are so. We want to see to it that the word is being rightly taught. And beloved, if the word is being rightly taught, you have to do something with it. Not being a mere hearer who receives, but a doer who obeys. In fact, it's one of the ways that we show that we're not despising the preaching of God's word. It's by our application and obedience to it. And it's done out of a love for Jesus. In this passage of scripture, we see that Paul expects the congregation to be good theologians. To be so familiar with the teachings of Scripture that they have the ability to snuff out false teaching. And it's only possible if we cherish God's Word. That out of a love for Jesus, we want His gospel to be rightly proclaimed. We want the right Jesus to be rightly lifted high. And we want the faithful teaching of Scripture to go forth in the church. If you're going to do that, then, beloved, discernment is essential because people twist the Scriptures. Satan used Scripture when he tempted Jesus. You know what false teachers use? The Bible. They twist it and abuse it. Think about folks in the past who abused Scripture to defend chattel slavery, segregation, and prohibit interracial marriages. Think about prosperity preachers today. Saying that God promises health, wealth, and happiness. They are twisting the scriptures. And it's this reason alone, which is why we need to cherish God's word all the more. And remain in it, that we may not be deceived. It's important for us to know the overall message of scripture and have the ability to read a text in its context. To know what God is saying. Beloved, if we're to do this in our gathering, how much more should we do this with counseling? YouTube videos that we watch, podcasts that we listen to, and books that we read. We never turn off our discernment. It's not a switch that you do on and off. You leave that thing on. And you always weigh the message according to what is being taught. You always weigh the message according to the teachings of Scripture. Beloved, it is essential that we prize the Word of God. In all ages, especially in our age, when everyone tries to be an expert on something and everyone is seeking to be an influencer, it is as we cherish God's Word, it prohibits us from being deceived, from being taken captive by empty philosophy and deceit. False prophets would love to influence skepticism towards the things of God and lead you to utterly reject it. 
And they're not going to call themselves false prophets. Which makes it all the more that we need to be in the word. Beloved, if we're going to hold fast to what is good, reject every kind of evil, Scripture must be and remain our compass. Guiding and protecting us. Guiding us to what's true, protecting us from falsehood. If we're going to do this, beloved, we need to daily renew our minds. But we won't do that apart from cherishing the word of God. It's exhortation. It was given to a congregation. And so we have the responsibility to help one another in this. We are to aid, work to labor for each other's maturity in Christ. We want to be mature in our thinking. All of us as members, we're to labor towards all of us having the mind of Christ. Where we seek to look more and more like him. Beloved, we do this individually and we do this in the context of a local community. Because God has ordained for our sanctification to be both a personal work and a community project. A personal work to where we ourselves are communing with God. Being in his word, following Jesus personally, and at the same time, it is a community project because we follow Christ corporately. There are no lone rangers in the Christian faith. We do this together, and so we need one another. Love, you're going to continue to cherish God's word. It's not going to be in isolation. The flesh is too weak. Temptation is too strong. We need God's people. Beloved, we have a real role to play in our sanctification, in enduring well and progressing in it to the very end. We commune with God, we cherish His Word, we do it individually, and we do it corporately. These ingredients are essential. And it's also essential that we don't do it in isolation. But that we do it together as a family. The family that God has made us in Christ. As Christians, the Christian life is an individual race that we run together. So may we do so. By God's grace, let's pray. Father in heaven, God, we praise you for your grace in Christ, that you will preserve us to the very end, and your grace strengthens us to persevere, to put forth effort. God, may we be a people who are joyful and prayerful and grateful, resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ, yearning for his imminent return, knowing that our king is coming soon. God, may we encourage one another in this all the more. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.